You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Well, we are in week three of six in our series on Galatians. And as part of this series, uh, we've been making our way through the book of Galatians in the Bible. And this book is written by Paul to the early Gentile Christians in the region of Galatia in Asia Minor. And the Gentiles were basically these non-Jews. And some of these Gentiles had come to believe in Jesus, but they were being confused by some Jewish leaders and people who were telling them that they couldn't simply be saved by faith in Jesus, but that they also had to follow Mosaic law and other Jewish practices like being circumcised in order to be saved. But Galatians is a passionately written letter from Paul to these Gentile believers, urging them to set aside these false teachings which get them caught up in rituals and religion, and instead to live true to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has set them and us free. And he reminds them that this freedom is worth fighting for. This freedom that comes through Jesus, not through keeping work, through keeping the law or works or earning their way to right standing, but through faith in Jesus. And a brilliant anchoring passage that we've been coming back to is Galatians 5.1, which says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be yoked again by a burden of slavery. And as we've read through uh, Galatians, we see that Paul goes as far back as the story of Abraham in Genesis. And he reminds the believers that long before the law even came, Scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Meaning that it was God's plan all along that salvation and the promises of blessing would come not through works of the law, but through faith. Because it was impossible for anyone but Jesus to fulfill the law perfectly. And Dr. John uh, has done a brilliant job over the last two weeks of helping us understand that through Jesus, we have a new way and a new focus, not fixed on us and what we can do to save ourselves, but on Jesus and what he has already done to save us. And it's from that place that we live for God. We live led by the spirit of God, not because we have to by the law, but because we get to out of faith and love. So as we continue on this week in the book of Galatians, we're going to be looking at how this new way and this new focus found in Jesus also brings about a new family, which is the title for this week's message. Now, today we're only going to be focusing on Galatians 3, uh, 26 to 4, 7. But I would highly recommend that during the week or when you get home, you have a look at the rest of Galatians 4 as it really goes more into detail about this new family that we have. But for today, let's read together Galatians 3.26 to 4.7, which will also be on the screen. And it says, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But then the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Wow. What an incredible truth to hear today, that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And we're going to get into more of that in just a short moment. But uh, recently, last week, I came back from Kenya. Uh, This is a country in East Africa. And this is where I was born and I was raised for the first seven years of my life. And I'm fond of Kenya, so I highly recommend that if you ever, ever get the opportunity to go there, please do go and visit it. But over the years, I've been back to Kenya uh, a couple of different times to visit family and to travel around. But the trip that I took this summer Uh, was quite unique and significant. Now, I know uh, probably some of you know a little bit of my story. I've shared it up here uh, before, but growing up, I didn't really have a relationship with my biological dad who lives in Kenya. But around July 2020, uh, we started to reconnect via messages and phone calls, and we've really been speaking pretty much every week and um, since then. And this has really created a space for honest and healing conversations. And so this trip to Kenya uh, was an opportunity to not only spend time with him, but to get to meet his wife and his children and his extended family. And technically, uh, though his family was not new to me because I'm biologically connected to most of them, it was, they were new to me because it was my first time meeting them. And you'll be pleased to know that it was a lovely first meeting together and a very warm welcome. And hopefully in the future as we journey together, we'll get to know one another more. But, you know, when we come to the passage in Galatians, it says that we can be linked to God as father and we as children. But this connection is not by virtue of biology or by marriage. It comes through Jesus. We might not be blood related, but we have been blood bought by Jesus into this new family. At the cross, Jesus gave his life through his blood for us. And Paul says that it's through his finished work and our faith that we come into this new relationship with God, where God is our father and we receive this new family. Now, let me just pause here uh, to clarify that though the passage says we have been adopted into sonship, what it doesn't mean is that simply that it's males that have come to become children of God. This idea of sonship applies to both men and women. And we'll understand a little bit of that later on. But back to the passage. It's as though Paul has been building up our understanding of our identity as believers. He's showing us that Jesus didn't just provide a way for us to come into freedom from slavery, this slavery to elementary principles, as he calls it. So like religion and rituals and demonic powers and all of these things that would hold us down. No, he's saying more than that. 
Jesus has made a way for us to become children of God. Now, I'm going to give you an example. It doesn't necessarily do it the full justice that it can with, as we see the power of this truth. But I just want you to imagine for just a second that you have been brought to court. You've been brought to stand before a judge because you have committed some horrible crimes that are worthy of the worst of punishments. And somehow the judge has sent in the lawyer for you, your defendant, the person who's going to defend you. And he sent him in. But the thing is, the lawyer begins to say to you that, you know what, actually, I'm going to take your place. The charge that you deserve to have, I'm going to take for you. I'm going to serve your time and I'm going to pay for your release. But after the judge has declared you free, he also begins to say, actually, that person was my son. That lawyer was my son. And now I want you to be my child too. I want you to be in my family. You see, the judge has not only set you free, the judge has made you his own child, which is an incredible thought to consider. And that's what Paul is explaining here. And how has it happened that we have become the children of God? Well, it says in Galatians 3.26 that it's for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The receiving of our identity as children of God came in Christ through faith. Everybody say, in Christ through faith. One more time, say, in Christ through faith. And this is the the same point that Paul has been trying to drill into these believers, that the same way that we receive right standing with God is the same way that we receive our adoption into sonship. It's in Christ through faith. You see, in Christ through faith is like this master key that unlocks so many new doors for us. It unlocks salvation and freedom and sonship and a new family and access to the Holy Spirit and these great and precious promises that we're going to get to step into. Now, hopefully, especially as we've journeyed through uh, the last two weeks, we've come to understand more about what it means to have faith in Jesus. It's this belief and trust and confidence in the finished work of Christ that means we don't rely on ourselves, but we rely on him as our savior. So I just want to take more of a moment right now to look at this idea of being in Christ. Because what I love about the passage that we just read is how Paul shares a couple of different ways through which we are in Christ or connected to Christ. And this can really help us to understand how God has truly made us his own. You know, when you want to stake your claim on something, when you want to say that something belongs to you, there are a couple of different ways that you can do it. You can put your name on it. If it's a seat that you came into today that you wanted to sit on, you can put your stuff on it. Maybe some of us, especially if we have siblings, if you don't want them to touch or eat your food, you just start to lick it fast and so that they don't get ahead of you, a bit grim. Or you could just say, that's mine. You can claim it as your own. So in Paul mentioning a few of the different ways that we are connected to Christ or in Christ, what he's helping us to understand is that we can rest assured that God has claimed us as his own, that we belong to him. And The ways in which Paul describes this idea of being in Christ, I've summarized as the four C's of connection to Christ, which will hopefully come up on the board, on the screen. 
So you're not really preaching if you don't have alliterations in your preach. So that's a pro tip. If you're planning on preparing any kind of preach, make sure you have some alliterations and words that begin with the same letters. But firstly, you are in Christ because you are covered. Paul says in Galatians 3.23 that you are baptized into Christ. He's not talking about water baptism, but the word baptism generally means being immersed or fully covered, just like how we've baptized people here before in water. And you see that they go completely under the water before we bring them back up. And baptism is all about this whole burial of our old life, this washing away of our sins and this stepping into a new life. So the point here that Paul is trying to say is that in coming to faith in Christ, you are completely covered and completely immersed in Christ. And so now that you've been baptized into Christ, what it means is that when God looks at you, when God sees you, he doesn't see your old, sinful, bound, enslaved self. He sees the new, righteous, free life of his son in you and all over you. I love how Colossians 3.23 puts it. It says, for you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Secondly, you're in Christ because you are clothed. Galatians 3.27 also says that you have put on Christ. You know, what you wear can be an indicator of kind of like your identity. I know for some of us, we wear school uniform or we wear, you wear work uniform, and it tells us kind of where you work or where you go to school. And I like it when um, couples in our church, like Abby and Janet or Catherine and Ashley, they come in with matching outfits. I think it's so beautiful. But more than it just being a beautiful matchy-matchy moment, it tells us that they are one family. And our being clothed in Christ is also a reminder of our identity and our belonging. And when we know who we are, when we know where we belong, it should shape how we live. And it should also remind us that we represent something or someone more than just us. And a really uh, important thing to note here is you may be automatically covered, but you have to make a decision to be clothed. Just like each day when you're getting up and you put on clothes, I hope that you put on clothes, um, and you step out, there's a decision about what you will wear, whether you'll clothe yourself in Christ. The thing is, Christ looks really good on you. But are you going to choose to wear the old rags of your days of slavery? Are you going to blend in at work or the different spaces that you are in? Or are you going to stand out and clothe yourself with Christ and represent a different way? Romans 13, 14 puts it like this. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Thirdly, you're in Christ because you are claimed. Galatians 3.21 says you are Christ or other versions say you belong to Christ. You see, in the spiritual sense, you were once lost. You were once an orphan. But now in Christ, through faith, it's as if Jesus would come and say, oh, she's mine. Oh, he's mine. 
you are his. He claims you as his own. I know for some of us, maybe especially if we have young children, at times when they are acting up, we don't really want to claim them as our own. We'd rather just remain silent uh, and blend in. But there is never a moment that Jesus never wants to claim you as his own. He says, Jonathan is mine. Sue is mine. You are his. You are claimed by him. And finally, you're in Christ because you are confirmed. Galatians 4, 6 says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, I have to be careful in using the word confirm because in some faith context, confirmation is about initiating a child into the church or into the faith. But that's not what I mean here. Instead, this confirmation is a work of the spirit in the life of a believer. It's verifying them that they are a child of God. Maybe you have like Instagram, I think it's also on Twitter. Sometimes if you've got an official page, you get that blue tick and it verifies that this truly is the real person. And the Holy Spirit for us is like that blue tick that verifies this is a child of God. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 puts it really well. It says, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see, the, the Holy Spirit is like a seal. It's another way that when we have the deposit of the Holy Spirit that says he or she is legitimately mine. And in the coming weeks, we're going to get to understand more about how the Holy Spirit helps us to not just be confirmed as children of God, but to walk in this power as children of God. We know we are in Christ because we are covered, we are clothed, we are claimed, and we are confirmed. But these are just four of the many different mentions by which we can know that we are in Christ and so children of God. So the first point for today, uh, the main point is that in Christ, through faith, we are children of God. But what does it mean that we are children of God? How should it shape the way that we live and the way that we think and experience God? Well, it means that firstly, the nature of your relationship to God is different. You can now know him as father. And maybe like me, your relationship with your natural father hasn't been great. It's been estranged or it's not been what it could have been. But that's not the way it is with God. In this father-child relationship, you have this deeper intimacy and closeness and access and care with God the Father. Um, some years ago, I came across this picture of John F. Kennedy in his office. It's going to come up on the screen. Uh, and this picture is John F. Kennedy. He's in the Oval Office. He was president of the U.S. during the 1960s. And under his desk, maybe you can notice that it is son, JFK Jr. And he's just under there, just playing. You know, if an employee or a stranger or another child was doing this under his desk, we'd think it very strange. In fact, it will probably warrant a little bit of conversation with the person. But because JFK Jr. is the son of John F. Kennedy, there's a level of access that he has to his father that others don't get. 
And in the same way, in our relationship with God as Father, there's a level of access that we will have to him that others won't. There are things that we can ask of God that others can't necessarily. Because this is the level of access that we have to our Father. We don't just get to be in the presence of the president of a nation without fear of punishment. We get to be in the presence of the creator of the universe as our Father. Now, you know, just because we're children doesn't mean we, we come to God recklessly or carelessly. Even as children, there's a level of respect and honor and obedience that we must approach our Father with. And we must also remember that because he is our father, that sometimes he will discipline us, not out of harshness, but out of his wisdom and his love. And all of that makes for a healthy father-child relationship. As children of God, Paul also reminds us that we've been brought from slavery into sonship. But, you know, so often we can slip back into this slavery mentality. You see, for as long as slavery has been going on, and even today with the tragic cases of human trafficking that still exist all over the world, the value of a slave is in their work. During Paul's time in the Roman Empire, the worth of a slave, how much somebody would be willing to pay for a slave, would be determined by things like their gender and their skills and their abilities, because these would be the predictor of how much work they could do. And as a slave, you had to prove that you were worth the investment. You had to bring a return on the investment. Otherwise, you would suffer much more. But as we seek to live out as sons and not as slaves, we must remember that while a slave lives to prove the worth of their work, a son knows that their worth, that their worth is in the finished work of Jesus. While a slave is robbed of their rights, an adopted son receives the full legal rights of an heir. We have to remember that whilst a slave knows that they belong to somebody as property, a son knows that they belong to someone as family. And in our journey as Christians, we, we have to live believing that through Christ, our identity has changed. Yes, a price was paid, but not for you to come and earn your way in, to work your way in, but to belong as a child. Jesus didn't pay only as much as he thought that you were worth. Jesus gave everything that he could in giving his life, which is a reminder of your worth. You were worth the ultimate price. And as a child of God, there's nothing to earn and nothing to prove. and We can rest in that. Secondly, in Christ through faith, this new identity as children of God also brings with it the reality that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I was raised as an only child and often one of the first questions that people come up to me and say is, so were you spoiled as a child? And then I get to explain the fact that I wasn't spoiled as a child, but to be honest, my parents never really had to consider how purchasing me something might affect the emotions of another child in the house or how purchasing me something might affect the resources available to get somebody else something in the house. But I use this example because often as Christians, we can journey through our faith as though we're only children. We forget that we haven't just come into the fatherhood of God, but that we've come into a family. We've come into a community. 
And, you know, even in the natural sense, in a, in a household where there are sim- siblings, if family members don't talk to each other or at least engage with one another deeply, it could be considered dysfunctional or unhealthy. And that's not the heart of God for his family. But, you know, often for some of us, we can choose to not share our burdens. We want to carry them alone or say that we're dealing with them with God alone. So we don't come to people to encourage us and to pray for us. We don't take time to pray for others. Often our prayers may be focused just on ourselves and what we want. We might remain silent instead of speaking the truth in love to a brother and sister and reminding them of the family values that we hold. Yet so much of the plan and language of God throughout scripture involves not just one person, but a complete community of people. It says he's building his church, that we are the body of Christ. Jesus prayed for our unity and he said that people would know that we are his disciples by how much we love one another. God even declared from the very beginning in Genesis that it is not good for man to be alone because even God himself does not exist alone. He exists in a community of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so when we try to journey through this Christian life with the mentality of it's just me and my God, then we've missed it. And as we continue to learn more about Galatians uh, in the future weeks, we'll see more about how we are to live as this community and how we are to engage with one another as the family of God. But, you know, on the, on the other side, on the other hand, if you haven't grown up as an only child like me, but you've grown up maybe uh, in a family of siblings, perhaps there is a time where maybe you've asked your parent or guardian, like, who's your favorite? That seems to be the question that can pop up, whether out of jokiness or legitimate questioning. And there's also stereotypes that we can hold about uh, different siblings born at different times. Maybe if you were a firstborn, at first your parents were really careful with you because this is the first time they've had something so fragile coming to the ho- from the hospital. They're driving so carefully and they're just so in love with you. But then as you grow up as the first child, maybe you experience the biggest part of your parents' strictness and harshness. You were the test and trial child, the one that went ahead of everybody else. If you're the middle child, often, unfortunately, they say that you're the forgotten child because you're stuck in between the first and the last. And then if you're the last child, of course, they often say that you are the most spoiled and babied because by that time, your parents have softened up. And so you get all the nice, nice sides of your parents. But I hope this isn't really the case for your families. I hope that your experiences were slightly different. But even if that was the case... Today, in the family of God, this isn't the case. You see, you don't have to wonder who's God's favorite is or who gets treated the best because when God looks at us, he sees Christ in all of us. We are equal before him and therefore equal before one another. In fact, can I let you know that we are all God's favorite? I know some of you hate it when your parents answer that. They're like, oh, yeah, you're all my favorite. But we are all God's favorite. Even in Galatians 2.6, Paul made a point of saying, you know, there are some influential people that humans like to esteem and value their opinion more. But God does not show favoritism. Why? Because if Jesus paid the same price of his blood for all of us, then there is no one that is worth more than the other. Which is why in 
um, in chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither female nor male. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, he uses these three groups of Gentile and woman and slave because these were the second class citizens of the society of that time. I came across this article where one uh, writer called Amy Rowell put it like this. Long-standing tradition recalls that the head of a Jewish household would start each morning with this prayer. Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. To the devout Jewish man, all of these three groups were suspect, subordinate, and second class. In that context, Jesus enters the first century world by speaking with, teaching, healing, and even eating with, God forbid, Gentiles, women, and slaves. His followers eventually came to see that these were not one-off isolated events, but rather God's intention to widely and fully accept all into his kingdom. So through Jesus, we are all equal. But that doesn't mean that we're now the same. There is unity, but diversity. There is equality, but not sameness. Like if you have children, you do your best to treat them equally, but you don't treat them the same. You see them as unique individuals with unique personalities that need to be raised up uniquely. And even if you had twins, you know that biologically or in other ways, they might look similar, but they're fundamentally very different people, but they're still part of one family. But what Paul is fighting for is for us to remember that the things that we would put up as divisions and distinctions to say that this person is more important than this person they have been torn down in Christ Jesus. Speaking of the Jew-Gentile groups in Ephesians 2.14, it says this of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility. You see, in Christ, nobody is more important than the other, whether by race or gender or ability or disability, nobody is more important than the other. We are all one. And what this means is is that we don't treat one another unfairly. We shouldn't see somebody as more loved by God simply because they read the word more or they engage in worship more. We shouldn't be drawn to comparison and competition which works to divide us. God has made us one and instead we should see each other as having equal worth and value and dignity. Can I invite the band up please? And finally, in Christ, through faith, we are heirs. You know, in Jewish culture, the rights of an adopted child were considered by law the same as ones of a biological child. So even if we're described as adopted children, we've all got the same rights to inherit as Christ. Romans 8.17 calls us heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, meaning that everything that Jesus is set to inherit, we are to inherit with him, which is such a profound thought. I don't know about you, but naturally in my earthly family, I don't exactly come from wealth. Mom, unless you've got something that you want to reveal right now, maybe there's some secret money somewhere, in which case I'm ready to go. I'm joking. And for you, it might be the same or it might be different. But the thing with earthly inheritances is whether you have little or a lot, once you pass away, those things are passed on. 
once you pass away, those things are passed on. There's a sense in how fleeting it is, not only because material possessions will eventually lose their value or get damaged, but also because one day you will die and you can't take your possessions with you. But the beautiful mystery of our inheritance from God is we won't receive this inheritance because our Father God will die. We'll receive it when we die and at the end of all things as we currently know it. The death of this world uh, will bring into reality eternal life with a new heaven and a new earth where no one ever dies, nothing ever gets lost or damaged. And it's hard to say exactly what this inheritance will be and what it will look like. But one thing for sure, it will be glorious. And a few um, scriptures that gives us hint of that glorious future inheritance. Hebrews 1-2 says that Christ is the heir of all things, meaning that we're going to be the co-heirs to inherit everything with him. Ephesians 1.3 says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Matthew 5, speaking of the Beatitudes, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 2 Peter 1.3 says, God has given everything that we need for a godly life in Christ. And I love 1 Peter 1.4, which says we will have an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven. And this all sounds glorious. And you know, one of the, the hard realities when we talk about earthly inheritances is that sometimes there are some people who are eagerly awaiting for somebody to pass away so that they can inherit what is theirs. But for those who truly love their family, what a better way to enjoy your inheritance than with your family. And that's why our inheritance in Christ will be even more glorious and more beautiful is because nobody in the end will pass away, but we will be in the presence of one another. We will be in the presence of Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and we will get to enjoy this inheritance together. So there isn't just an inheritance to look forward to. There is a family of God to look forward to. I wonder if we could stand. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing uh, another song in just a moment that is going to remind us of our identity in God. And I, I believe that the Spirit of God this morning once again wants to remind us of who we are in our identity. Sometimes these are things that we can hear in the Word, but not necessarily allow them to sink deep. But I pray that this morning as we declare this song together, that it will sink deep for you, that you are a child of God, that you've come into a family of God. Maybe you felt less than with other people before, but I pray that that today the Lord would remind you that you are in equal standing with everyone, that he loves you and he paid the ultimate price for you. Allow me to pray. God, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for the reality that as we've come into believing in you, in Christ, through faith, that we don't just get freedom from slavery, but we've come into sonship. We've become children of God. We thank you that we have a family. We have a place to belong. We have an identity. And Lord, I pray that as we sing out today, Lord, that you remind us of that identity in you. 
Lord, I pray that even as we walk out of this place, Lord, that we would connect with our brothers and sisters to be encouraged, Lord, that we wouldn't feel that we're navigating this world and this life on our own, but Lord, that we would have courage to walk alongside our brothers and sisters. And I pray that daily, even as we get caught up in the day-to-day life of things, Lord, that you would remind us that there is a future ahead of us, a future that is more glorious, more wonderful, more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And this is our inheritance in Christ. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.